This play is a classic because it's like if Jane Austen actually wrote a play. This play is a classic because it features a full-rounded ingenue who takes charge of her own future. This play is a classic because it was written by a princess. Oh, so true. So true. (laughs) This is our history. This is our legacy. Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater podcast. We're your hosts, Sky Pagan, ensemble member of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater and curator of Expand the Canon. And me, Shannon Corinthian, director of production for Hedgepig. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based theater company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. Today, we are diving into Princess Amelie of Saxony's The Uncle from the Expand the Canon list available at expandthecanon.com. If you were to go to that page, and you should, what is our pitch for this play, Sky? Well, if you're looking for the German Jane Austen's riff on a marriage plot, where the impressionable ingenue turns out to be a shrewd strategist, then consider this fresh, delicate, romantic comedy. Lowenberg needs his uncle's approval for his intended marriage to Anna, but he knows he'll never get it from such an avowed bachelor, unless he can trick his uncle into falling in love with his beloved himself. (laughs) But the plan works a little too well. After ridiculous miscommunications, deceptions, and delightful physical interludes, Anna emerges as a self-possessed agent of her own fate, and Princess Amelie ensures us that her leading lady has the last laugh. Lovely. So let's dive in. At the beginning of the play, we learn that the young, attractive Baron Julius Lowenberg has broken an engagement, is in debt, and is looking to marry (laughs) the young and rich Anna von Sturmer, who is set to inherit millions from her uncle. However, to get the approval for the match from his mother, Julius must obtain the approval of his quote-unquote, stick-in-the-mud uncle first. A lot of uncles in this play. I know, there are a few uncles. (laughs) Just remember, the second uncle is the one that matters. (laughs) Correct. Yes. Julius goes into this long tirade about how his uncle is this traditionalist, is old, he's a doctor, he studied for so long, and he has so many old values, and he didn't understand the young folk. When in fact, Dr. Lowe, Julius's uncle, is how old? 38. He's 38 years old. (laughs) Yeah, he's 38. Truly not that old. (laughs) Not that old of a person. But Dr. Lowe knows his nephew's temperament and is more likely to encourage Julius to go back to his first engagement and see it through. Finish what you started, Julius, he's pretty much saying. You have a tendency of going all over the place. Which, like, fair. Yeah, super fair. Julius is in his early 20s, right? So Dr. Lowe knows He's been around town, and he knows that Julius is also this foolish, young, gambling man who believes that he's immortal and doesn't suffer any consequences for his actions. He's, like, not a bad guy. He's just got, like, young rich kid syndrome. Pretty much. Pretty much. But this doesn't work for Julius. He doesn't want to go back to the first woman because he's in debt. He needs to marry someone who has money and is hopefully gorgeous, which is Anna. Then Julius's friend proposes a plan. 
Julius should make his uncle, the doctor, fall in love with Anna without knowing she's the one he wishes to marry because they've never met, so that when he announces his love for her, the doctor won't be able to object. Doesn't that make so much sense? Well, part of the context for this, we should say, is Dr. Lowe also had had a previous paramour who had died, and his whole treatise on life is you fall in love once. And so theoretically, the logic is if you prove to Dr. Lowe that you can fall in love with a second person by making Dr. Lowe fall in love with Anna, that he won't have a leg to stand on about Julius falling in love with a second person, also Anna. (laughs) So it's basically like, make him see that he's a hypocrite and then he won't force Julius to marry the first woman. Yeah. Yeah. Convoluted logic, but theoretically there is logic. convoluted logic. (laughs) Cut to Anna. We see her, she's a young woman taking care of her ill stepmother. This is like a Disney stepmother meets Mrs. Bennett on steroids. <laughs> this woman is so her stepmother because Anna's father died tragically. And the stepmother kept taking care of Anna, despite the fact that she's not blood related to her, but has kind of used her as a Cinderella. They have money, but she is kind of a aid to the stepmother. The stepmother is also a hypochondriac in search of attention. She's truly just like, woe is me all day, every day. And also, Anna doesn't have much money to her name personally yet, despite being the child of nobility, because the money is being held by the stepmother and her uncle hasn't passed away yet. So his inheritance won't go to her as of now. And so she's taking care of her stepmother to have a place to live as well and the household needs and the neighbors. She's super intelligent. And because she's taking care of everybody and this sick stepmother, she's developed an interest in medicine. We learn that she wants to marry Julius to save him from that abyss to the very brink of which his false friends have allured him. To be able to say in my heart that the man of my choice owes all to me, all that I have restored him to the virtue duty, and useful energy. Big fixer-upper energy there. (laughs) Truly. I was like, yeah, yeah, Anna. Okay, sure. I've thought about this while rereading it. I was like, a lot of people can identify with Anna. You fall in love with the potential of a person, not the truth. (laughs) And like we said, Julius isn't a bad guy. He's like perfectly charming and nice. He's just fairly egotistical and sheltered. So Julius sets the plan in motion when he sends Anna to Dr. Lowe. She believes that Julius is just helping her by sending her to a doctor for her stepmother. She's like, oh, okay, great, because the stepmother's doctor isn't available, i.e. he just doesn't want to deal with the stepmother right now. (laughs) Fair. And so she goes to Dr. Lowe. And at this point in time, Anna hasn't met Dr. Lowe. She's convinced that Julius's uncle is this old curmudgeon and has no idea that she's actually about to meet him for the first time. (gasps) Because Anna knows that Julius needs his mother's approval and that the mother's approval is dependent on the uncle. So there's this whole thing where Anna knows kind of the circumstances that she's in. She just doesn't know that she's about to meet this uncle who she believes is this older man. And we finally meet the doctor this time who wants the best for his wayward nephew and knows about his goal to wed a wealthy woman. So Dr. Lowe is also knows Julius's side of things, that he wants to marry this person who's a Von Sturmer. He's never met her. She's wealthy, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't know what she looks like. But like I mentioned earlier, Dr. Lowe wants Julius to follow through with his initial engagement slash promise so that it puts him back on the straight and narrow. 
he's under the impression that Anna is this young, frivolous, wealthy ingenue who, you know, is just another of Julius's conquests, not anything serious. I should say also in meeting Dr. Lowe, it's also important to note that while he's clearly depressed and sheltered and a little stuffy, he seems like a nice, normal guy. Yeah. So like all we've heard about Dr. Lowe to this point has been like, oh, he's this grumpy old curmudgeon from Julius. And then we meet him and he's like 38 and just like science. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, he's a nice, normal guy. He's just a little bit older and is holding on to this one true love from 20 years ago that he hasn't been able to let go of and is disappointed in his nephew. So in walks Anna in common clothing, because remember, her stepmother isn't evil, but she's also not the nicest woman. So she's in common clothing and she's interested and knowledgeable about medicine and their fate is sealed. They bond over their shared passion for medicine. Anna believes him to just be a simple doctor, 38 to her 20. She's 20 years old. And Dr. Lowe just believes her to be a kind and intelligent common woman because she arrives and she's like in this nice-ish dress. She doesn't say who she's with. She's saying she's caring for Von Sturmer, Lady Von Sturmer, but she doesn't say who she is. And so he's just like, yeah, she's a servant or a maid to the Von Sturmer, not the daughter. So over the course of a month, because that's a deadline that Julius had given himself to make his uncle fall in love with Anna, Julius continues his machinations. Anna becomes confused about her feelings for Julius, since she has strong feelings for Dr. Lowe, still not knowing who he truly is. Dr. Lowe discovers his nephew's plot and then is torn between the love of his nephew and his love for Anna. So drama ensues as the plot is exposed, but the characters don't communicate. The doctor believes Anna was a willing participant of the farce. Anna is hurt by Julius's endeavor and believes the doctor is still ignorant of the plot. And then Julius and his friend come up with this whole idea to get Julius to marry Anna without the doctor knowing that that's happening and that he's signing the marriage for his previous engagement. So there's this whole plot where they're all going to be in the same room. Dr. Lowe is supposed to agree to this previous marriage, but what he's actually signing is the marriage contract between Julius and Anna. It's like big Moliere vibes, <laughs> which they actually reference that there's a quote in the actual play where they're like, you know, that scene in Moliere where they like switch these marriage contracts, do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so there's this whole convoluted plan and we get to the final scene and it's Anna who comes out on top because she figures out the whole thing in the final moments. She's like, you know what? This smells fishy. She gets help as well. And she tricks everyone and creates her own happy ending. She receives her inheritance and she gets to marry the man she loves. And everyone lives happy ever after. Truly. Or at least Anna does. <laughs> Anna does, which is the important part. Legacy. The best thing about this is really Anna and the sort of like reworking of this traditional marriage plot, especially when at the start of this play, we have this like female character who like theoretically has very little agency over her life, at least in terms of like legality and financial situation. She's very beholden to the other people. And then in the end, she just gets her own back by just tricking everybody with their own tricks. So she really just like takes advantage of this situation she's been put in where everybody else has been taking advantage of her and her own good nature. And she uses that to her advantage to get what she wants. And it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I agree. I love the you build this character to be this. She's not helpless, but she's framed as kind of just 
the object of Julius's intention, especially because we don't see her until later and everyone kind of talks about her. And then when you meet her, she's this fully rounded, intelligent individual who is capable of creating her own fate. And I really love that. Yeah, she's clearly just like a very smart heroine. I feel like there's also this sort of interesting blend in her character where I feel like usually in these like farcy marriage plot plays, the woman who does the tricking is very much more like salacious. Yeah, like a Catherine or, you know, or like a Beatrice, like somebody who's much more like quippy and brash and like Mm -hmm. all these things. And Anna's just like kind of just a nice, smart person. And that's like a whole plot line is like what I think also draws her to Dr. Lowe and their friendship and their relationship is like they're recognizing in each other two people who have a sort of inherent gentleness and integrity about each other, which is just really sweet. I mean, it's just like you root for people who are just sort of nice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I love this play. I, I just remember when I first read it, I was like, this is we read a lot of marriage plays, but this was just so wholesome. Yeah. We should also say it's like a very funny, quippy read as well. Yes. Like it's, oh, for sure. It's very witty, just great one-liners throughout. Mm-hmm. And like very self-aware. Like we said, like there's that whole thing with the marriage license switches where there's literally a character who has a line that is like, this is like a Moliere play. Yeah. And so it's very funny in that sort of smart arch way of, oh, this is a writer who very much understands the genre she's writing in and people's expectations and is like not taking herself too seriously and fulfilling those expectations. So it's just really a delightful read. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It speaks to, I mean, why we picked this play because it's reminiscent of a lot of the marriage plots that we read, but it's also easier, I would say, in terms of language, despite the fact that it was written hundreds of years ago. In the language and in the plot, it is just like a fast, fun, well-written, well-built story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And just a bunch of fun little side characters. I mean, it's not, like Shannon was saying, it's like a very quick read. There's not a lot of excess in this play. It doesn't require a ton of cuts. It doesn't require a ton of replacing of problematic language. Like it's a very lean piece in terms of it moves quickly. Every scene is pretty much advancing plot pretty clearly. There's no 8,000 characters that don't need to be there. It's just (laughs) sort of everything is moving towards this inevitable confrontation where all the mistaken identities and, you know, star-crossed lovers come out. Yeah. It was a kind of a like love at first read with this play Mm. because it was just simple and I think sometimes we confuse classic with needing to be complicated and blah 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 but Mm. this speaks to a universal truth of love and or universal experience I should say of love and also kind of ageism and these are characters that are pretty accessible like they're still the kind of out there character of the stepmother but yet she's recognizable because we've both seen representations of the stepmother, but we all have people in our lives that are similar to these people. And same with the side characters. They provide comic relief, but they're also close enough to realism that it feels more like a slice of life, like an embellished slice of life than just like a marriage plot or a marriage play. I just remember it just being like, wow, it was just well written from start to finish. Like this is a playwright who knew what story she wanted to tell and knew how she wanted to tell it and just did it very efficiently and beautifully. Yeah. And I also think, you know, in terms of characters having growth, this is a really nice one as well. Yeah. It's like people are, A, I think she treats her characters very gently because mm-hmm. even the most sort of 
conniving characters in this play. Like there, there's not a lot of actual malice in this play. There's people behaving badly, but largely for reasons that you sort of understand, or at the very least, like Julius, it's like he's got these debts and he's not the most reliable person, but it's also, you get the sense of like, he's young, he can learn. You know what I yeah. mean? He's not a fundamentally evil person. He's just yeah. sort of like this young, spoiled, rich kid who's never had consequences to his actions before. And so he doesn't know any better. And, you know, throughout the course of the play, he has consequences to his actions. And so mm. hopefully he learns. And right. even the same goes for like the stepmom. It's like, we didn't really get into that, but like a whole thing that happens is Dr. Lowe sort of puts her in her, in her place, place. <laughs> a little bit. And, yeah. you know, A, I think that sort of endears him to Anna, but also allows her to sort of learn and grow and become kinder in her treatment of Anna and other people as well. And so it's like, and even Anna, like, it's like, you know, she, as much as we say that she starts as this character who is very kind and smart and resourceful and all these things, she's also not really in her pursuit of integrity and all of that. She's not super willing to stand up for herself. Mm -hmm. We see her sort of taking this abuse from her stepmother and letting Julius be Julius <laughs> around <Right>. her. And <laughs> right. Dr. Lowe remarks on this to her of like, you shouldn't let your stepmother talk to you like that. Like you shouldn't let her treat you that way. And then we see her sort of take charge of her own fate by the end of the play and tell people what she thinks of them. Yeah. And it's effective. We see her grow as well and developing a little bit more agency. Yeah, I agree. And I think also what makes this nice while there's, you know, this growth of characters and everything, what makes it also really easy to read is the fact that it's not that it's low stakes, but it's in a world of quote unquote privilege, which is another reason why I think we put this on this list is that we deal with a lot of plays that have super high stakes. It's life or death. There's all these things and context and conflict surrounding them. And with The Uncle, you get to just enjoy a story and not have to worry about all of the additional weight that's going on, and especially with this climate and especially with everything that's going on outside in the world, being able to escape to this fun love, tr like kind of triangle story feels good. It feels like a good 90 minute to two hour escape from the harshness of outside. I'm tired of apologizing for loving rom-coms. I love a yeah. good rom-com. Nothing soothes the soul like a sweet little love story. There's a reason we've been producing them for all of time and the reason sure. we will continue to because sometimes, like Shannon said, you just need something that is balm for the soul. And this play is... Balm for the soul. History. What do you have to tell us about this incredible playwright, Shannon? Yeah. Weirdly, I think we have other playwrights. I'm not even going to bring her down. I'm not going to bring Princess Amelie of Saxony down. But she, I think, in terms of also her play of being a clear-cut story, Amelie of Saxony also had kind of a, like, straight and narrow path in life, except for a few moments. She was born at the end of the 18th century in Dresden, Germany, as the niece to Frederick August, the first king of Saxony, which is Ooh. also now known as Germany. Now you might think, how can a princess understand the life of the common people? Well, when Napoleon invaded Germany very early in the 19th century, the family fled and was then exiled to Prague, where they slept on floors and straw mattresses. If you know anything about Napoleon and Germanic history, you would be like, well, Frederick August was a fan of Napoleon. Like, why would they leave? 
Well, his family, his entire family of the king, couldn't abide by Napoleon's politics and values. And so they left. <laughs> they were like, we can't actually deal with this. This person is awful. So we're going to go. Which I think is kind of brave for a bunch of, because it was mostly women and children um, who just kind of left <laughs> Germany. During this time in exile, Amelie was exposed to real life and saw how common folk really lived, how common people really lived. You know, because she was in exile and she didn't have access to the wealth of Germany and, and of her title that being a princess of Saxony afforded her, they lived very common life. This combined with the stellar education she had already received and continued to receive from her aunt, the queen, and her mother led her to start writing. And her writing was so engaging that her own diary which included her disdain for Napoleon I, was published in the New York Times in 1883, after she had died. <laughs> Just putting yeah. Napoleon on red. <laughs> yeah, truly. <laughs> She's like, in case you don't remember, I don't like you. <laughs> During their years of exile, Princess Amelie witnessed domestic and social life in ways someone of her rank would never have had the chance to. And it's truly influenced her writing because if you read her plays, you'll notice that the subject matter of her work consisted of everyday life featuring characters from all stations of society. She really wanted to represent the everyman. Well, the every woman, actually. Amelie mm -hmm. and her family were finally able to return to Dresden and their home in 1815, where she was exposed to Italian operas, and shortly after her began to compose operas of her own under a pseudonym, because again, you know, she's a princess. Women also weren't really writing that much, and she had to kind of keep her anonymity. From 1816 to 1835, she composed 10 operas. Whoa! Yeah, 10 operas, which is kind of insane for a woman of her age at that time. And also operas. If you've ever been to an opera, it's long. It's complicated. Yeah, composing an opera is metal as hell. <laughs> yeah, truly. This is the second woman on our list this year that also has a musical background. Shirley Graham Du Bois also has an operatic background as well. But this season, we're really featuring the multi-hyphenate <laughs> women her operatic works were performed during family celebration, which again is like court celebration. <laughs> Your family dinner party, <laughs> aka the palace. <laughs> right, like it's all the high nobility, but you know, they're just family celebrations. As the exception, a few of her works were performed at the Pilnitz Theater in Dresden, which is kind of a big deal because they were just performed for the court. They weren't made public until they were performed at the Pilnitz Theater. And then when she finished writing her 10 operas, she switched to writing plays, comedic plays in particular. Because her work started gaining popularity when they were getting produced, she stopped writing under a pseudonym. She had like three pseudonyms and then was just like, you know, everybody already knows who I am. Everybody likes these plays. So like, let me just sign these as myself. <laughs> I have to wonder like how effective that pseudonym really was. Truly. Because it's like, oh, these <laughs> operas are written by a woman and we're going to just produce them a lot in our court. Don't yeah, worry yeah, yeah. who wrote them. <laughs> who wrote these? I wonder. Princess Amelie of Saxony is like, I'm going to put on glasses and call myself Clark Kent <laughs> and then takes them off. And she's like, just kidding. I'm Princess Amelie of Saxony and I've been here the whole time. <laughs> because she gains popularity and everything, the English began to take note of her work, comparing her plays and characters to the beloved novelist Jane Austen. Ugh. Yeah. There are a lot of comparisons made because their stories felt very similar in terms of like 
who they were talking about and the love plots and all that good stuff. Translations of her work were published in England in 1846 and 1848. The one that we read is a translation from about the same time from a woman who loved Princess Amelie of Saxony and they spent a lot of time together. The book itself is called Social Life in Germany. There are two volumes. But the 1948 translation were published by John W. Parker, who did the preface notes for both Jane Onsen and Princess Amelie's work, in which he says, the plots of both writers are naturally and easily contrived. Scarcely any event takes place which might not happen any day in common life, and yet the denouement seldom fails to take the reader by surprise. Hmm. That's a really lovely summary of the uncle, really. I agree. I wish we spoke like this. What if our podcast was just this? Anyway, sorry, moving on. <laughs> so Princess Amelie's work helped others understand more about German societal standards and nuances and expressed inherently feminist positions, specifically on a woman's consent to the people who read or saw her comedies. She eventually passed away in Dresden on September 18th, 1870, at the age of 76. So she spent her whole life, except for the time in Prague, in the same place. I also want to say, I mean, like, I think we forget that in talking about women's rights over marriage and inheritance, like it's a radical stance Yeah, for a writer to center a female protagonist as having any agency over her marital decisions and financial decisions. Because again, it's yeah. like, you know, at that time, it's again why Jane Austen is considered so feminist. It's like, yeah, okay, maybe those things aren't necessarily predominant in the same form of that conversation today in most places, or at least in most parts of America where we're talking about these things, but it's still a big deal. And I also do want to point out that like control over marriage and control over finances is not a universal right, even in the world today. Mm hmm. And it's not a universal right, even in like America. (laughs) And so it is still, you know, a feminist voice. It's very easy, I think, to be like, oh, it's a marriage plot. They get married. And it's like, well, it actually is still radical idea for any story that is centering a woman's own right to choose her own destiny, I think, is still a feminist take. Agreed. And worth celebrating. Agreed. And I think especially when they're they're portrayed with such just like truth. It's not an embellished. It doesn't feel like the princess is saying like, this is such a revolutionary moment. She's just saying that this woman does this and it's accepted. And I think that's also kind of beautiful. It's like, it doesn't become this revolutionary, which it still is. Like you were saying, it's still something that is such a big deal and takes such a presence in our lives as women because we don't have agency, but she portrays it as kind of a thing that's Yes, it turns everything on its head for the plot, but in terms of everybody's acceptance of her being able to do this, it is. It's just accepted, which I think was really nice. That reminded me, I mean, sorry, we, I know we already like talked about the plot, but it just reminded me of one more detail that I really loved in this play where there's this moment when Anna and Dr. Lowe are negotiating what's going to be in this marriage contract. And Anna, because she's gonna use this moment to trick everybody she asked dr Lowe to not look at the details of the financial part of their contract in advance and he immediately agrees and is like i'm not interested like you're fine how you want to handle your finances is completely your decision Mm -hmm. so i will agree to whatever you are comfortable with i don't need to see it it's fine which like i mean like always look at a contract before you sign it but truly 
like I do really love that detail of like for him, A, it's not about the money, but it's also important that she has whatever agency over how her finances are controlled as possible. And I just really, I thought it just what you just said reminded me of that detail. And I really love that. Yeah, I agree. I, especially because it comes when he thinks she tricked him and that she's still marrying his nephew. And the fact that even though he feels betrayed by her, he's still treating her with respect and decency, I think mm-hmm. speaks to both his character, but also, like you said, yeah, that she's a full human and deserves her own financial agency, regardless of what's happening around that. Yeah. I want to read this dedication of the illustration in the social life, in the book, The Social Life in Germany, volume one, that we read this from. These illustration of German social life selected from the acted dramas of Her Royal Highness, the Princess Amelia of Saxony, are especially dedicated to the young of my own sex, to whom they come recommended not less by the refined taste and the beautiful moral feeling displayed throughout than by the novel picture of manners they exhibit with so much life, truth, and simplicity. Yeah. I just thought that was really pretty and beautiful yeah. and, and kind of also encapsulated the feelings of this play. Absolutely. Now, here is a recording from our filmed scene from Princess of Saxony's The Uncle, performed by Madeline Addis and Greg Phelps, and directed by Emily Lyon. Hello, ho, who is meddling with my office here? Dr. Lowe. Good heavens, this man is not so very old. You have been putting on the sticking plaster? Let me see. Good. Very well, indeed. Couldn't have done it better myself. You're quite a female surgeon. I was raised in the country, and their necessity teaches such experience. So your assistance is required on all sides and never refused in time of need, huh? You seem a very good sort of girl. What is your name? Anna. I was sent to request your attendance on a sick lady, Madame von Sturmer. Sturmer. Not the same who was under the care of Dr. Richter. The same. She? Why, she is half-cracked, Dr. Richter says. Perhaps a little capricious and self-willed. But do you pity only those who are sick in body and not those who are sick in mind? What's the matter with her? That you will hear from herself. (laughs) Only have patience with her. Does she keep her bed? Oh, no. She receives company, goes out. And sends a young girl like you running in the streets in weather like this? Excuse me, but this Madame Sturmer of yours displeases me sovereignly. She is old. And so therefore should have more sense. I did not observe until this moment in what condition you are. Your clothes are all wet. You shiver. You are in a fair way to pay for the caprices of your lady with an inflammation on the lungs. Here, quick. A glass of Hungarian wine. Thank you, doctor, but I cannot now. Better still. A spoonful of my drops. You must take it. Absolutely. We doctors suffer no contradiction. Well, to make you easy. And now, make haste home. It is done raining. Will you not come home with me? Excuse me, but I do not much like the idea of encountering your lady. How shall I have the courage to appear before her without you? Good doctor. Have some compassion for me. 
at least. For my sake. Visit the old lady for my sake at least. For your sake? Yes. But first I must go see my friend Catherine's son. Uh, do not be long, pray. Don't fear me. <laughs> for your sake, remember. And only for your sake. Chikit. Chikit. Thank you to Madeline Addis, Greg Phelps, and Emily Lyon. And also our director of photography, Jenny DeRosier, and sound designer, Stephanie Coriatis, and production stage manager, Jessica Fournier. You can find this scene and more on our Instagram page. And another big thank you to Emma Stern, who did all the wonderful dramaturgy for this episode. And a great thank you to Kate Howell for editing this episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. And if you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, a colleague, or a professor. For info on what's up next with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Hedgepig Ensemble Theater or Facebook slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or you can join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below. Once again, I'm Sky Pagan. And I'm Shannon Corinthian. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.